you guys, uh, as you settle back in, um, it's going to be a bit of a different you know, message today because, um, you know, the, the, the important thing, a church has really one job in terms of its message, and that's, uh, or at least the, the banner that goes over it or the tip of the spear of the message is the, the acknowledgement of, of the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is, you know, he's, he's alive, he's risen, he's, he's capable, and, you know, and he's willing uh, to be invested in our lives, and that is our message. But at the same time, the lens this week through which we need to interpret the lordship of Jesus is the tragedy in the Warren family, because if it doesn't, if his lordship doesn't have something to say in the midst of that, then, then we have nothing to say. And so that is a lens today that we're going we're gonna to speak through. I want to tell you, I, I, I literally walked into the, the doors of the sanctuary at 10 o'clock from the hospital, uh, spent the morning with Charlie and Relia, and just a number of messages I can bring forth to you from them. Um, they are so incredibly thankful for you guys. So incredibly thankful and blown away by your love. It is, it's been a testimony not only to them, but to so many people in their family to see uh, the body of Christ activated. And that doesn't, that's not, the credit for that is not just uh, exclusive to our congregation. When I say the body of Christ, I mean the whole body of Christ has been, <clears throat> it's been a, a testimony to the Warrens, to their family, to the hospital staff uh, that are there. And it is both an, uh, an anchor, a mooring that keeps them where they need to be, grounded, and also it's buoying them. It's keeping them up, you know, lifted up where they, where they need to be. And so they are, they are deeply, deeply thankful for uh, all that we're doing. I'll have more to say about that in a bit. Uh, also, they are deeply thankful for your willingness uh, to honor the space they need to rest. And uh, what we want to do is we want to hang out uh, there with them to put our hands upon them and to hug them and love them and be with them and to let them, you know, tangibly. Jesus, it says in John 13, when he, you know, loved his own in the, in the world, he showed them, came, when it came to the end of his life, he showed them the full extent of his love by putting his hands on them and washing their feet. And we in, want to show our love in tangible ways, but right now the most important way in which we're showing them our love is by giving them the space to heal. It's not only their request, um, I'm saying it as nicely as I can to interpret uh, the, the words of uh, hospital professionals who are saying, Pastor, help us do this in a nice way so we don't have to do it in a not nice way. And so, um, you know, just give them some space. There's going to be, Relia's road to healing is going to be long. And, and, and so we need to spread out our care over that, over that course. And again, I'll have more to say about that in a minute. Um, they also want you to know how important it is for them, for us, to continue to acknowledge and take account of the miracles that are happening. They are blown away by the miraculous that they see happening around them. They believe, as I believe, that God is absolutely hyperactive right now. And, uh, and so... They are asking me to ask you to be vigilant, to keep your eyes open for God on the move, and to not just keep your eyes open, but to take account. And they want to gather testimonies of the miracles, of the, of the Lord's activity 
in their lives and in your lives. And, and what, what things that Charlie said to me this morning is he said, um, the acknowledgement of seeing Jesus move is making this less hard. I thought that was a good way to say it. It doesn't make, you don't know, go, wow, I'm thankful, um, but it's making it less hard. He said other words. I'm just PGing it up. It's less hard uh, to, to, to walk through. And so um, thank you in, in all those ways. We have no desire as a congregation, as, as leaders in the church, to be in control of anything. We are only going to do as the family asks us to do in terms of communication and so forth and so on. I had said to Ralea and Charlie, I'm not afraid to be a jerk and to tell people don't go and don't be there, but, uh, but we recognize the fact that you're adults and the Lord will lead you as well. And so um, let's just try to, to, to walk this out together as, as best as we can. I'm going to pray and then and get into the word and explain to you uh, the, the nature of t- t- the message today, and, uh, and then let's just see where the Lord takes it. My, my goal is to be done and to create space for us to linger on Wednesday night when we gathered. Uh, it was a difficult but, but meaningful service, I think, and one of the things that I was most encouraged by in that is that we ended and we ended and lingered, and the, the fellowship that happens and the lingering is probably more impactful and healing than anything else that we're, we're doing and saying. And so I want space for that at the end. So my aim is to be done to give space for that. And so, Lord Jesus, we come before you with, uh, with honest hearts, again, to ask you to, to fill this space. We, we don't want to be left without uh, a true and solid word of your activity in our lives in this season, in this time. And so make yourself known, uh, there are times, Lord, that I wish I wasn't the guy that had to stand up here and say things because sometimes it's really hard. But I'm willing, Lord, if you're willing to fill me, if you're willing to speak through me, I'm willing to stand up here. And I ask that you would, you would do that in a, a literal way. I ask for, the, for your Holy Spirit to come and fill me, to move through me, to speak through me, and to allow your words to go out like grace-filled thunder. Lord, I pray that there would be Lives impacted, even eternities impacted by what you have to say. And uh, the stuff that's just me processing stuff in my life that has no bearing on, on eternity or on things that really matter deeply, Lord. I pray that those words would be, uh, they, would, they would fall to the ground like dust and be swept away and removed from memory forever. We just thank you, Lord, that you have a desire to speak. We long to hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. So sometimes, uh, I, you know, most of you aren't preachers, uh, so I'll just let you in on a little preacher insight. Mo- sometimes as a preacher, you preach on Sunday uh, morning, and you're anxious and hopeful that the Lord has a real message to share, and sometimes by Sunday afternoon or Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever it is in the week, you have to stand in a place of accountability for your words. Sometimes the Lord will bring it right back round. Uh, there's messages I haven't preached because I knew I couldn't stand in integrity and preach messages. Um, there are other times, though, that the Lord says, oh, okay, okay, all right. Really? Really believe that? And I will tell you that last Sunday I preached a message that Tuesday night I had to stand in accountability for in the enemy speaking into my life and the Lord uh, speaking in much higher, much louder volume in my life. And so 
because I preached a message last Sunday that uh, if, it, if, it, if it didn't apply on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and today, then, it, then I'm done. And so I feel like what the Lord has said to me uh, is to just go back and preach it again, to declare it again. So if you weren't here last week, uh, I'll say some things that will be sound new to you. If you were here last week, you're going to hear some things that are going to sound the same. But I have something to declare to the spirit of the age of the air and to the powers and principalities. And I have something to declare to the Lord, uh, back to him and to us as a body of, of, of believers that I hope will be right and real and encouraging and from our hearts. Uh, so here's, by way of review, where we were last week. At the end of the book of Matthew, almost the very end, the end of the 27th chapter of the book of Matthew, a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor of, of, the, of Judea, uh, who was in charge of a lot of the things that were happening around the, the crucifixion of Jesus. You, you know this, right? I'm not telling you things you don't know. Sometimes we encounter these stories in Scripture because so many of us grew up around the church we encounter these stories with so much familiarity that they don't really hit us the way that they should. We don't really feel the tension of a story that's mounting towards some place of like having to be wrapped up. We don't feel the drama of it and the emotion of it and the way we don't weep when we go, you know, how could this man who is so good be crucified? How could he be taken from us? How could... How could he, it's not just, it's not right. How could he be taken? Why, why not put Judas on the cross? We should, you know, if we read it honestly from left to right without knowing what's going to happen, if we could somehow get there, we would feel a greater weight than we do. But we understand the story. We know because we live on this side of the resurrection that we know on Friday that Sunday's coming. That's not a bad thing. But if we on, enter into the story honestly and we look at what's happening at the end of uh, Matthew 27, um, we should be somewhat concerned at this twist. But also, if we have truly read all the way through the Gospels, we should be somewhat like, whoa, what's going to happen here? Here's what Pilate says when people come to him, the religious elite, and say, look, we want to make sure no funny business goes on, so we want to make sure that tomb is secure, the one that Jesus was put in. And Pilate says in response to them what I believe to be the most futile words ever spoken in scriptures, maybe in history, or if you're from the South, the most futile words. It means pointless. He says to them, go, take a guard, and make the tomb as secure as you know how. Those words are meaningless. They have no power. And my point is to say this, that if the tomb, the empty tomb, the open door, the insecurity of the tomb isn't as real today as it was last Sunday, then we should just go home. But if, in fact, the tomb as, is, is as insecure today as it was then, then, then we have some place, some ground to stand on that has not moved in the wake of, of, of real loss. So 
Here's why we maybe should have been a bit suspicious. If you go back and read the pages of Scripture, honestly, you'll see the fact that Jesus, uh, anytime he encounters the gates of hell or death or whatever, he has something to say. He never, he, you know, it's, I say it often, but it seems like he wrecked every funeral he attended. Luke chapter 7, he, he encounters this girl he gets delayed on the way because of his healing ministry and Jairus' daughter. He, you know, he wasn't able, according to the people that were there, that were friends and family, he wasn't able to show up on time. Isn't that one of the concerns that we have? Where were you? I want to just step out of that for a second and tell you that I believe that There was never a moment in Eli's life, the end of his life, that the Lord was not abundantly and readily present to him. I don't understand everything about eternity and about the way in which we live in between now and the great resurrection and the the finality of all things, but I do believe with all my heart that those who die in the Lord are with him and are somehow aware of their presence with him. And I, I feel deep certainty that Eli is not only with him, but aware of what it means to be with him. He knows Jesus better than anyone in this room. I think he's probably told Jesus a couple of jokes. I guarantee you Jesus laughed. And the people in that day in Luke 7, they, they, they mock Jesus when he said, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And Jesus touches her and says, get up, and she gets up. I want you to know on the way, on, on, on Tuesday night, uh, on the way to meet Charlie, um, you, know, you know the way these things work. There's a lot of fog. There's a lot of, no, nobody knows exactly what's going on. And, and I picked up Brian, and we were driving um, I don't know how well we drove, or I drove, uh, but we got there to Shands because that's where we understood that Ralea was being lifelight, and we met Charlie and, and Ralea's mom there, and sure enough, they'd taken her to Orange Park, so then we had to get them in cars and get to Orange Park. But on the way from here to there, Brian and I prayed. Now, we didn't pray maybe like you're thinking, like, Lord, Brian and I have gathered together in this car to drive here, and we just come before you. It wasn't that kind of prayer. It was messy guttural, tongues, groaning, asking the Lord in the wake of all this misunderstanding to raise Eli. That, that was our prayer. And I can't explain to you how, why, when, where it happened, but I would say to you that we knew there was a time to shift our attention to focusing on attending to the needs of those who were there in grief and to Relia and to those who were assembling around. Because we had a functional certainty that Eli was with the Lord. And so Jesus, though, you know, flipped the pages to Luke chapter 8, and he is uh, encountering a, a, a funeral, the widow of Nain, who is uh, following this procession out of the city into the outside the camp to bury her only son, and she's a widow. And Jesus looks upon this scene, not upon the the sadness of the funeral. He looks upon the living and he sees this woman who's in this place of loss and 
vulnerability. That, you know, she's doubly marginalized now. She's a widow, and she's got no child to care for her. She has no way to provide for herself. And Jesus knows the next thing for her is for her to go outside the camp. And so what he does is he looks upon her with compassion. He goes and touches the boy. He doesn't say what the leaders of other religions, world religions, might say to try to give voice to it. He just says, boy, get up and go back to your mama. And as much as I wish that that's exactly what Jesus had done this week, I believe that the Lord is looking to us and saying, you've got a family that's here that you need to attend to, to take care of, to make sure that they're not marginalized in the wake of great loss. Go into John chapters 10 and 11, and Jesus loses uh, a very, very close friend. And uh, as I said on Wednesday night when we gathered, uh, Jesus at this point is growing. This is a whole other message, but for me to get there, I have to process this. Jesus is actually growing in his maturity into full sonship. When he, it says in Philippians 2 that he surrendered everything and made himself nothing, that means when Jesus came, even though he was fully God, he didn't have all of the tools on his tool belt. Is God. He wasn't omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent. He couldn't be all places at once. He had to actually grow. He actually models for us what it looks like to be a perfect disciple, to grow from a childhood into full maturity and to be fully present with the Lord. And as he's growing in maturity, he's growing in power, I believe. And Jesus now, I believe, is in his maturity, has full understanding as he's making his way to Lazarus's tomb what he's about to do. Are you tracking with me? Jesus knows that this isn't going to end the way that the sisters in the community think it's going to end. What is, what are the sister, what, what's the word that, that Jesus gets from Martha? Or is it Mary? Where were you? Where were you? If you'd only come sooner. And do you go back and read the story? Jesus says, let's take our time. Let's let, we need to let him, we don't want to show up too soon. And so he arrives Look, this is another theological lesson. It might appear to us as though Jesus shows up late. or just, We even say sometimes, man, I'm glad he showed up at 11, 59, 59, like it was the last second. It's never the last second in the Lord's timing. He always shows up exactly when he's supposed to show up. And he shows up exactly when he's supposed to show up. And he walks up to that situation. And knowing what he's about to do, instead of just entering into that and skipping all of the weight of it, he allows himself to be fully embedded in the humanity of the moment and fully present in it. What does he do? In the, in the, the verse that every child loves to memorize when they're commanded to memorize Scripture, John 11, I believe 35, Jesus wept. We love to memorize it because that's it. Jesus wept. He wept. He didn't have to, right? He could have skipped that part. And the, th- the significant thing for me in that is what I said earlier is true for us today, which is this. It is fine. It is right. It is reasonable for us to enter into the full range of human emotions and have faith. We don't have to lay aside feelings. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to even feel anger. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to feel all these things and have faith that we believe that Eli is in the best place and that the Lord is going to attend through us and with us and friends and family to the needs of the Warrens. Can I just say a word about attending to the needs of the Warrens? I want to give you a picture because what do we do 
what do we do in the wake of tragedy to answer the, the needs? There's two things that we, we show up with. Do you know what they are? One of them's food, and the other one's money. Okay, that's, that's what we do. And that, those are good things. I mean, I can remember that my earliest memories of grief in my own family were uh, my grandfather dying and our kitchen being completely full of meats. You know, it's just, it's, it's a strange association. It's one of the things that we do. And I think that's all a good thing. But here's the word I want to give you. We need to approach our care for this family like it's a marathon. Like it's a marathon that's going to go on, you know, how long are marathons? 20, I want to say 24.6, but it's 26.2. Okay, so like 26.2 years. The, the, their journey is going to be the rest of their life. Talk to people who are acquainted with this. I mean, talk to my friend Corey who lost his mother in a very similar accident eight years ago, Corey? Ten years ago? How many? Thirteen years ago. Talk to Corey about if he still feels things. Um, it's going to be a marathon. And here's the imagery. If we all say, as family and friends in a body, we volunteer to help at the marathon, and we all show up at the starting line and say, we all want to help at the starting line, then there is no help at mile one, mile two, mile three. Mile. We have to spread our care out over the course of many years. Not many weeks, but many years. And I'm calling us as a congregation to demonstrate our love, and our community, our care, our unity by being willing to walk with this family and not just this family, but any family, like Corey, his family, or any of us who are, Pastor Kevin, how old were you when you lost your father? Eight years old. How old are you now? 31. Do you still feel it? We don't, it's the twofold gift of God that we have the memory of these things that we've lost and we have joy. And it is our, it's an imperative for us in the body of Christ that we be willing to spread ourselves out over the marathon and help at every step of the way. Amen? Amen. So Jesus is uh, crucified and in, in the wake of his crucifixion there's an earthquake. And as I said last week, there's some very bizarre thing that happens and that we act like isn't there. We forget it or you skip over it or maybe if you've never read the Bible, you haven't found this. But in Matthew 27, before Pontius Pilate says, make the tomb secure, in the wake of the, in the aftermath of the earthquake, Graves open up. And it says, many holy people. Many, not like one or two. I mean, this isn't like Jairus' daughter or Lazarus. Many of them come up out of their graves and walk around Jerusalem and appear to many people. It's one of the weirdest things in all of Scripture. I don't know what it means. I don't know where they went. What happened to them? I have no idea. I will tell you this just from the standpoint of being theologically precise, because these things are important to me. No one has been resurrected from the dead but Jesus. People have been resuscitated, brought back to life. Lazarus was brought back out of the tomb. He lived his life. He died again. There is only one resurrected man. But I will say this. For those like Eli that we miss so desperately, he is, in fact, experiencing the power of the resurrection in ways that you and I don't even know or understand you know, yet. So these women come to the tomb and... and uh, there's almost this scene, if you're reading it honestly, you know, Pilate, make the tomb secure, as you know, a, 
uh, you know, a, a rope, a stone, a Roman seal, a guard would be like 15 men. The way it works with Roman guards is this, that uh, they're accountable entirely. And so if one was appointed to keep watch and one falls asleep and then something happened, that one wouldn't just be executed, all 15 are executed. And so there's this, there's this hyper overreaction to the king of kings and lord of lords. And in a way, the reason it's so futile is there's nothing that the Roman Empire could do to keep Jesus in that tomb. Yes, sir. And there's nothing the disciples could do to get him out. Right? This is, it's, it's, it's entirely futile. It's, it's only the power of God. And so when they, these women show up and they encounter an angel, the angel says to them, come and see. Come and see for yourself. He's not in here. Come and see. And, and, what he, and then they meet Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, come and see. He says, go and tell. Go and tell everybody else. Go and tell my followers about this. And it, the word says that they were terrified and with joy. I talk about the twofold gift of God and our emotions being able to live together. The fear of the Lord and joy. Like, what is happening? And I am so happy. And what I said last week was this, and certainly this is the place of great testing for me this week, is that the only way I know to tell you to put that to the test, it seems so oversimplified, it seems almost like it's not worth saying, but I can tell you it is life for me, is this. Go about your life when you leave here today and when you wake up tomorrow and the next day and the next day, asking, learning to ask moment by moment, Lord, are you with me? Are you alive and with me? And act as though he is. Live your life as though he is. Say what you're going to say knowing that he's with you. Act as you're going to act. Believe what you're going to believe. Do what you're going to do as though he's with you. And it will make a difference. Just try it. Put me to the test. I want to hear testimony of somebody who actually gives that a try. Live your life as though he is alive. Because he is alive. (laughs) Well, I have two final things to say, and then I'm going to be done. Uh, I'm so thankful that our church is Maranatha, Church of Jacksonville. I had an opportunity standing here with a news reporter last Wednesday. To, he says, what is Medananatha? <clears throat> I said, oh, well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> and it was an opportunity to present the gospel to a man who clearly had no previous experience with Maranatha. (laughs) And so uh, the gospel went forth. I don't really like, I have nothing against news media. I actually think that they're a resource that's been able to, to, to help get word out. But I'm thankful that I had an opportunity. I know that, that Katie had an opportunity, Pastor Kevin, to stand before these, these, the community and to declare our hope and our faith in, in, in the risenness of Jesus and the security of Eli's life in him. It's a great privilege to be able to do that as, we exp- as I explain like Maranatha, Maranatha and, and things like that. So as glad as I am, that's our name. I want to tell you that there was a close second in my heart for Maranatha Church of Jacksonville, and that's this. I the close second was open door something. Because I believe one of the most common occurrences in the pages of scripture is this continual return to the Lord demonstrating his love, his life, his activity through open doors. It almost always represents a place of going from death to life, 
So, for example, in Hosea chapter 2, when he says, Hosea, go marry a woman, and she's not going to be a very good woman, you know, and, and she's going to go and sell herself into harlotry, and you go buy her back because she represents my people Israel. And the relationship I have with my people Israel is a lot like this. And, and as much as you want to be done with her, buy her back, pay the top dollar for her, because this is what I'm going to do with my people Israel. I'm going to lure my covenant people into the desert. And I'm going to take them back to this place called the Valley of Achor, which is the Valley of Trouble. It's a place where Achan stole, took what he shouldn't have taken, and he, he and his people paid the ultimate price for that. It's a place of great shame. And the Lord says, I'm going to take my people Israel back to the Valley of Achor and there open for them a door of hope, a petatikva, a door of hope for them. There's all kinds of examples of how this happens. Do you want to know the greatest of them all? It's this thing called the empty tomb. There is no way to secure this tomb. It's an open door. Jesus says it this way in Revelation 3. He says, I am setting before you, says this to the church in Philadelphia, but I believe he says it to the church of Maranatha, Jacksonville, I am setting before you an open door that no man can shut. There is an open door set over your life in this place. If you will follow him as Lord, that nothing can close. No one, no event, no thing can close. It is an open door for you to be connected with Jesus here and now and for eternity. He is the unchanging man. The final word I want to share with you is this. It's the most difficult word for me. It's the one that we have to really grapple with whether we really believe it or not. And it comes out of Romans 5. And if you're able to find, uh, beginning of Romans 5, I don't know if it starts in verse 2. It says this. It says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You familiar with that? You know, um, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Easy enough, right? How many of you rejoice in the hope of God's glory? God's glory, here's what this means. There's a day coming where God's going to return in glory and his glory is going to be revealed to the whole earth. It's going to cover the entire earth, right? And we rejoice in the hope that that day's coming. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, not only that, but we also rejoice or glory in our sufferings. The Greek word that's used in the second part there in verse 3, not only so, but we also glory or rejoice in our sufferings is the same exact word that's used to say we rejoice in our hope. Do you get how difficult that is? That the call of God in our lives is not just to rejoice in the hope that someday he's coming to make everything right and cover the earth with his glory, but he's saying to us that in the same way that we, and the word that he uses for rejoice there really means like to lose your mind. Like, like the way I always think of this in my mind is like imagining the Jaguars win the Super Bowl. I mean, for those of you who are Jaguar fans, or, you know, or imagining that Star Wars releases another movie or whatever your thing is, something that would bring you, like, you, you know, what is it in your life that would make you actually express yourself with joy? What is that? And then whatever it is that would make you actually come unglued and be like, be willing to, for people to see you in your joy and the hope of the glory of God, it says in the word that in the same way in our sufferings, we're supposed to be able and willing to express ourselves with joy. That's a difficult word, but if it's true, it's imperative. I believe it's true and imperative. 
In the same way, we rejoice in the glory in our sufferings because we know that our suffering, how many of you have felt some suffering this week? Feel some suffering. And I really don't want to make it all about me, you know? And I know you don't want to make it about you. But when one suffers in the body, we all suffer. And what I'm proclaiming over Ralea and Charlie and Ian and Evie is Psalm 147.3, which says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And so I rejoice in the promise in the midst of my suffering that that suffering will produce perseverance. What do I mean by perseverance? I mean a group of people who can be in it for the marathon along the whole way to care. We can persevere. We're not going to give up. You know, when it comes time to get real, when Ralea wants to sit around a campfire and share her heart, and you're like, you know, I can't handle this. You know, there are going to be some who are going to need to press in at that moment and persevere because we're able. And that perseverance actually produces within us the character, the mind, the nature, the attitude of Jesus. And that character, as it's produced in us, actually produces hope. This is a production plant. Whether it's hope in the glory of God or our suffering, our rejoicing in that God uses all of this to produce hope. And it says hope doesn't put us to shame. It doesn't disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I need that. Do you need that? Do you need the power of the Holy Spirit, God's love poured into you in the form of the Holy Spirit in such manifest way that in the midst of what we're feeling right now, we can rejoice? I need that. Because I need him to produce within me hope. Because you need within you hope. And you need to produce it in a way that guess what? There are people who don't know the Lord who are going to come to know the Lord because of Eli's story. This little boy's life, the story of his life isn't over. And the message of his life isn't over. He's just a boy who loved Jesus. This is a boy who felt called to ministry. And his, his life, his story is going to lead people to the Lord. And we have to be prepared to have this production plant go on in our lives where we actually have actionable, real hope to offer people who are hurting. And if you're with me, I want you to stand. I'm going to kneel down here at this altar and then at the end I'm just going to say go in peace but really what this means is it's until our Iglesias Ciudad family comes and kicks us out you're free just to linger by the way our Iglesias Ciudad family is mourning with us they're sitting Shiva with us uh, our hill, uh, the hill crest across the street grieving with us I've had calls from a dozen churches who said we're with you and we grieve with you and we stand with you. Body of Christ is real. So Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would do this, that you would... Lord, enable us to take up our post along the marathon. Help us, Lord, to lose our minds, to to put our praise out at the head of our feelings, Lord, to acknowledge your worthiness so that we can have this hope produced within us through perseverance and character. 
Lord, we won't shrink from our suffering because we need more hope. It's so intoxicating. It's so addictive, Lord. We need more hope. Give us more hope. Produce it in us. If you want to join me, you can.